Welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. Uh, today, James Bond is busy at Pinewood Studios doing little pickup shots of stuff they missed. Um, so I'm your fill-in host, James Page from mi6hq.com and the magazine MI6 Confidential. And for this episode, I'm joined by Bill, David, and Joseph. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hi, I'm Bill Koenig, and I run a blog called The Spy Command. This is David Lee, and I run the jamesbonddossier.com. I am Joseph Darlington, head of section from Being James Bond. All right, guys. So as we are at the end of the year, we're just days away um, from the clock turning to 2020, which will be a, uh, who would have thought it would actually, 2020 would be a Daniel Craig, James Bond film release year, but here we are. <laughs> um, <laughs> After many false starts. Um, so uh, our podcast has only been around for like nine months, so we've never done one of these before, but we do it on the website. And at the end of every year, we look back on the names that are no longer with us from the Bond world, whether it's the films, books, or, or whatever, um, or the community as, as a whole. Um, and so I thought it'd be a good time to uh, look back at those who have uh, departed us in 2019 and like look back at their work on the franchise and their impact. Um, so I wanted to kick it off. We're kind of going to do it in like chronological order. Um, the first person we lost from the Bond family was uh, Nick Finlayson back in back in January, and um, that name might not be familiar to like the casual Bond fan, but um, he was a key member of Chris Colbert's visual effects team um, from 1985 all the way through to Skyfall. So if you'd have killed Skyfall, um, worked on all of those films, um, and was a just a wizard technician on, on making the things that you see on screen work for the time that they're on screen, as they famously said, um, and worked a lot with miniatures and, um, and gadgets. A lot of those skills um, really aren't as prevalent in the film business now as they used to be with um, kind of like CGI trickery and whatnot. But um, he was one of the do-it-for-real technicians. And then the big name to drop, um, who we lost in February, was Albert Finney, who passed away. Um, everybody will know him for his role in Skyfall as Kincaid. And we've had a few jokes about Kincaid over the podcasts. Um, but when Albert Finney's name was first linked to Skyfall, I don't know if you guys remember, no, nobody kind of could pigeon him into which role he was going to play. And I think the Daily Mail even said he was going to be like a secret service mandarin or something like they had no idea of what role he would play and it turns out he was basically a pseudo father figure for james bond i remember that story because when he died um i looked up that story and that was the case where it was it was a it was a bad story and he was half right and he had the the big half you know that Finney was going to be in the movie, but yes, he had described the word was, I think a secret service Mandarin or something like that. I think the way he described him, I think he got it mixed up. I think he thought, uh, Finney was going to have the, the Rafe Fiennes role. So, you know, I, like I said, I had not seen that story, uh, since it had originally run. And then when I was writing it, my obit for, for Finney, I found it. And, uh, yeah, that was that was interesting. That how uh, Baz got a fairly significant detail incorrect, and of course, you know the uh, the scuttlebutt rumor was that that role was at one point floated for Connery, right? <laughs> so, well, I, 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 I think Sam Mendes confirmed that, didn't he? At one point, 
yeah that it was it was raised and and dropped yeah yeah and it, yeah and they rejected it because it would have um it would have been too distracting to to watch yeah which uh, yeah it would have been a terrible decision and i think i might have seen a, a story with purvis and wade also confirming that you know the idea had been considered um i think somewhere lee tamahori was putting his fist in the air saying yeah <laughs> <laughs> no code words. <laughs> yeah. But what what would Connery's response have been? How much? You reckon? <laughs> yeah. Part could. of the sentence would be go yourself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I looking back on it, you know, the lines are lines like, you know, you trumped up little shit. I mean, you could, you could honestly see Connery doing that, couldn't you? Uh, like yes. speaking, speaking uh, yeah. down to yeah. Craig as Bond. And it would be that fourth wall breaking kind of insult, wouldn't it? Yeah. It, um, I, well, that of course was Finney's last role, I believe. Yes. Uh, it was, yeah. And, you know, yes, it, 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 he was a uh, perfectly, perfectly fine for that role i thought it uh it added it added a bit of oomph there in that uh, long skyfall sequence you know the, when i say that i mean the sequence at skyfall the, the manor stately bond manor but uh no i <laughs> I, I i thought he was a, i thought he was a plus for the movie yeah, I, I, as I've said before, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Skyfall, but uh, I, I, I do think he played. I, I, I kind of like the ending, and I, I, I do like his contribution uh, towards it. And also, he, he injected a bit of humour because the thing with uh, calling M Emma and all yeah. that kind of stuff was mm. quite good. But, uh, but I, it, quite sadly, I, I can't think of any other film that I've seen him in. Well, one of the things he made – well, of course, he had worked with Harry Saltzman on the, what, mm-hmm. the kitchen sink dramas, they were called, at least one of them. And, yeah, uh, and, it, and he was in Tom Jones with uh, Diane Cilento, Sean Connery's – I don't know if she was his wife at the time they filmed it, but uh, uh, it, it's kind of weird. It's kind of like he was always kind of at the edge of, of – Bond-related activity, but you know, it wasn't until Skyfall that uh, you know his last film that he actually participated. Yeah, and he, he split his work between the screen and the stage, so that's probably why he didn't have such a prolific film career as he could have had if he wanted, because um, he, he he did a lot of stage productions. But he was nominated five times for an Oscar. I, I guess it's just yeah. one of those blind spots, David, because I'm, I'm I'm with you. I hadn't seen him yeah. often. Time I, I, mean, I hadn't seen him in a lot of things before. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've seen Tom Jones in, in the kitchen sink dramas aren't my thing at all. So, well, and of course he was in the Bond movies as well. Well, there was there was. Ah, the, okay. Well, he played Hercule Poirot in that uh, 1974 version of uh, of um, Murder on the Orient Express. I remember seeing that in the theater. Okay. Um, well, I've I've seen that a few times, so I didn't realize it was him. Yeah, no, he's, mm. he, he had a lot of, you know, <laughs> between his mustache and all the all the makeup and stuff. Yeah, it's kind of easy to kind of. I mean, he he definitely got absorbed by the role, uh, and of course he was in Annie, the movie version, as Daddy Warbucks, yeah. which was mm. so you had you know so you had a non singer 
in a prominent role and you had a director, John Houston, who had never directed a musical. Um, that was just sort of an odd production for, for any number of reasons, but, uh, he had a, a nice little burst in the early 80s, I remember. And there was a movie that I saw a million times called Looker that he was in. And it was it was kind of like, a, again, early 80s science fiction thriller. Um, but uh, very forgettable. But it was one of those that was just on TV constantly. So I just remembered it very well. Oh, and of course, um, in that Murder on the Orient Express, Connery was one of the suspects. Um, hmm. God, I didn't so, even remember Sean Connery being in that. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. my memory. <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure whoever's in charge of the budget does. But, uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, um, Finney's character, Kincaid, you know, survived Skyfall. Um, so his character lives on in the James Bond universe, I, I guess. Um, although I don't know how that affected um, our friend Mark's Skyfall 2 back to the chapel. Um, <laughs> screenplay if Kincaid's no longer there either but of course the building's destroyed as well so it's uh, but but the the big question is what happened to the dog dogs uh, two dogs yeah yeah. I only remember one yeah Yeah, two hunting dogs yeah Um, so uh, only a few weeks later we lost Shane Rimmer who as a kid growing up in the 80s I was I loved Thunderbirds because it was doing a big British Renaissance in the 80s on TV as a kid. Um, and I remember getting into James Bond around the same time. And, oh, that sounds like Scott Tracy of Thunderbirds, the guy that's the submarine guy in The Spy Love Me. And, you know, before the internet, when you could look these things up easily. Um, and then a years later, became a friend of the site. And we did multiple events with him and interviews. And um, tremendously nice man. Um, but, um, I, me personally, I actually remember him for his work on Thunderbirds rather than his various roles in the Bond series. Well, actually, I remember th- I remember Thunderbirds first run. So, um, uh, so do I, Bill. <laughs> problem of being old. <laughs> um, but although I have to admit, I did not realize that the characters, the sons, were all named after U.S. astronauts. Yes. Um, which that that had totally escaped me all these years, but um, but yeah, I mean, uh, he 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 definitely got a steady source of income. I think he did more than Thunderbirds for Jerry Anderson. Oh yes, not, but, did, but Thunderbirds was the most prominent. Yeah, and he, you know, um, Shane Rimmer kind of fit that little niche of work in the UK, which was you're the American actor we can have for this role. Right. In a British production, and there were a few of those, you know, around that time in the seventies and eighties. Um, well, it was Superman too. He was a he was like a NASA controller. Um, the the bad Kryptonians arrive on the moon, and these U.S. astronauts are do, are walking on the surface, and they get killed by General Zod and company. And Shane Rimmer was like, you know, the controller, you know, back at back at nasa and of course he, he was actually in the first three supermans actually he was in uh he was in the first one he was uncredited but he, he's listed on imdb as the naval transport commander uh and then in superman 3 when the bus pulls into smallville with the big fire he's the guy the cop who talks to the uh, the bus driver okay okay I for some reason I had only remembered Superman two. He was, was very prominent in that one, yeah. Yeah, and uh, well, of course, his 
Bond debut was You Only Live Twice. He was the he was the guy who pronounced Houston as Houston, right? Um, but he was the guy who first spotted the intruder missile <laughs> approaching the the U.S. spaceship at the at the start, I believe. Um, and you didn't get a really good look at him because he was you only saw him on a monitor, and so his image is kind of distorted. Uh, and then he was in Diamonds as the guy who talks to Willard White. He's among the many Willard White employees who've been bamboozled by Blofeld. Um, and, you know, he, he recognized the satellite or something. I forget. Get him on the phone now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he gets, <laughs> he gets yelled at by Willard White. Um, but then, of course, it was The Spy Who Loved Me, which was his most prominent role in the series. That that, that was a pretty extended run for a um, – up until then, he had very small parts. That that was a, that was a decent-sized role and yeah. you know, obviously a very sympathetic role as well. Yeah, I, I need to correct something. Uh, I said Bill said that he saw the first run of Thunderbirds. I said I did too, but I've just looked. Uh, Thunderbird, Thunderbirds was uh, – it, it – uh, was first aired like about 15 days after I was born so I definitely didn't see the first run <laughs> <laughs> now I'm, I might have seen it maybe a year after it was in England but it was definitely syndicated to the US in the 60s I, I said that. it was the most expensive TV show produced in uh, in the world at the time it was made so yeah oh, it was okay. the syndication deals that kept it going yeah yeah. yeah, no, I I, I, I presume that uh, when I was watching it, uh, when I was five or six, that was the first run. But it was uh, it was a number of years before then, so uh, yeah, interesting. I think the last thing I remember Shane Rimmer in was the Batman Begins, the yeah. first Christian Bale Batman, and uh, it was it's always, it, he was a guy who was always really nice to see him again. But he was always sort of playing that same kind of a role that that uh, we lost them on the scope, right? Kind of a- <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> His his role in Spy Love Me, Commander Carter, it's not one that really ever makes the list of James Bond allies, is it? Even though I think his presence in that film and his chemistry with Moore is great, and um, mm. it's actually a pretty significant part in that in the last act of that movie. And and he has you know? a really nice scene with uh, Roger Moore where he's the one delivering the bad news that yeah. they're under orders to you know destroy yeah. Atlantis. Yeah, and Bond then talks. You know, talks him into giving him an extra hour, but uh, but that was you know a little. You know, that was a nice little scene. Um, you know, he got to yeah. do some you know real acting more than just you know I lost him on the scope. Right. <laughs> Haven't you ever seen a commander take a shower before? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. It's a tough life. That role is you're gonna have to sit there next to a naked Barbara back taking a shower through multiple takes of <laughs> that line. <laughs> But uh, yeah, but he was, um, I think when we started doing events, um, Dine of the Day-ish time, I slipped that one in there around 2002, um, he would always come out to the signing events and the conventions and just an absolute gentleman, absolute, um, really nice, warm guy. We talked to anybody. Um, um, and that's because he dipped into so many, you know, um, things that people had affection for whether it was like any of the Jerry Anderson series, you know, he was in Doctor Who, he did stuff with Stanley, uh, Doctor Strangelove, you know, there's all, and The Saint, and there's all these other productions that he was on that that's, people really care about, you know. That, so, that's right. He had the one classic line in, in Doctor Strangelove, where is Major Kong? <laughs> <laughs> 
just before just you know just before slim pickens rides the bomb down <laughs> right but to, to have touched all of these different things that, that a lot of people have um nostalgia for i should say so he was uh he, he was and he would speak about all of them with, with affection lost a big name Bond girl um, in Tanya Mallet. And that was a bit of a surprise. I don't think uh, anybody saw that coming. And, and the media really did pick up on that uh, passing because, you know, being an iconic character in such an iconic film and the fact that it was the only film she made as a model, and that was the only film she did. And there's a famous line is, you know, it's like, if you're going to be in one film, why not it be Goldfinger? Um yeah, I hadn't realised that she'd only been in one film until she did die, in fact, when I was looking into her life. So, uh, yeah, quite uh, quite interesting. Uh, I think half British, half Russian or something. And, and she talked about how little she was paid. Um, mm-hmm. In other words, the obituaries carried quotes from a long-ago interview and one reason I guess she never made any films was she could make so much more modeling. She was so in demand. Um, yeah. Uh, and I started gather she, she was her the negotiations over her salary for Goldfinger. I guess were kind of rough. Um, <laughs> at least right. I got that impression reading some of those stories. Um, so that she had committed to do it, so she did it. But like you know, ne- never going to do this again. <laughs> Right, um, you know, I'm sure the um, the royalties over the years went bad, but the initial pay was was pretty low. We um, we talked to her in 2003, I think, the first time we talked to her, um, and um, this is kind of just in it's it's almost like a days gone by, kind of like how the world used to work. Is we wanted to talk to her about her work at Goldfinger and her career and everything, and um, instead of doing an interview, she just sent us this beautifully long beautifully written long letter about her stories and time on the film and everything, which we still have. And that's like one of the nicest thing, you know, just as a, not so much as a memento, but just as a, um, a thing that she gave us, you know, that was, she, she didn't write a memoir. She didn't do um, uh, an autobiography or anything, but this was, you know, this was her telling her story. Um, so we still have that. And that's one of the things we've um, valued, you know, of all the things we've done over the years. Um, but she was a super nice lady. Um, didn't let her fame get to her at all. Um, very down to earth person with a very famous cousin, um, in Dame Helen Mirren, who, you know, she really went after the acting career that, um, I think Tanya Malik could have had if she wanted it, but you know, life was more lucrative and easier on the modeling side. So we never got to see what a career she could have had as an actress. And what a great launch point it would have been if she'd have decided to do it, you know, being one of the headline girls in Goldfinger. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and and, and certainly she had a memorable demise getting undone by Odd Jobs' hat. 
um, which sounds ludicrous, but you know, in the in the movie, really did have an impact. It's it it really is one of the more emotional high points of the film because um, right after you know her character's killed, then the John Barry music kicks in, and um, and you know Connery as Bond looks really really pissed, and you know he looks at Odd Job. It's like. You know, you, you get the feeling Bond knows he can't do anything right now, but he's, you know, he's going to remember this. So her, um, her demise, you know, then helps move the story along as well. It's a great moment, too, because you saw the hat being used like there was always the threat of the hat. But she's the only person who was actually taken down by it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think it is one of the mo- most brutal um sacrificial lamb moments of the early of the connery era anyway um i'd say paula in thunderbolt is pretty pretty bad but that's off screen you know right. that happens mm. off screen and um, it was paula doing it i mean i mean you know she yeah. she took cyanide to not talk with with uh you know with goldfinger you know you don't really see that much but there's this sort of like sound effect that you know helps your imagination <laughs> imagine what's happening to her neck um and uh yeah no it, it, it was very well done um for that time and for any time yeah i remember um somewhere around i think the 50th anniversary of the series i think she did a uh she recreated the drive in switzerland with a motoring magazine um i can't remember um, links in the description below. We'll, we'll dig it out and um, link it. But she did revisit the locations and stuff um, years later, which was very nice. Right, and her character um, is the first person to drive a Mustang because that was the car's movie debut. Um, they were filming it at the t- you know around the time that the car was actually being unveiled in New York. Um, it was unveiled in. April of 64. I don't know the exact shooting schedule for the, you know, the Alpine drive sequence, but it would have been, it would have had to have been either, you know, shortly before or shortly after. So, Bill, I'm going to lean on you for the next one. All right. Pronunciation-wise. Ali Karabay. Oh, not your Reagan. All right. Reagan. Yes. Ali Karabay. Ali Karabay. She's in twice, of course. She's, she's. Uh, I don't know what she was to Ali Karabay. Was, you know, just one of his mistresses? Or was she like an enemy operative like trying hoping to get some information out of him it's never really stated um and then and then of course she's in the beginning of goldfinger um the the dancer who then is in on it with the capungo and bond sees the capungo as the reflection of her eye so two very short role two very little roles for her but uh you know kind of certainly kind of memorable in the 
Bond uh, uh, pantheon. So she was pretty um, prevalent in like Hammer movies and doing you know little um, bit parts in like Danger Man and The Saint and other bits and pieces around the time. But it's it's kind of um, one of those careers of just um, all of the productions happening around London at the time, um, just picking up parts that came along. Um, what would you say? I don't know. Would you say that she's going to be more remembered for the, her speaking role in from Russia with love or the pre-titles mini role in Goldfinger? I'd, I'd, I'd say Goldfinger um, mm. because the, the, it's a great pre-title sequence and her, her, her role there is is absolutely critical, and uh, I think uh, in From Russia with Love is a bit bit more forgettable. And and I was also about to say her sequence in Goldfinger, that little bit sort of in, it, it sort of represents the mood of the entire film pretty much. Um, you know, it was definitely Goldfinger was definitely a lot looser compared to Doctor No and From Russia with Love. And I mean, I don't know if you. <laughs> You know what? It's probably unlikely you could actually see the guy's reflection in her eye, but uh, you know, but that, but you know, that's that's Goldfinger. You know, yeah. just of all, the, of all the things they did in MythBusters, they never did the reflection of the goon in the eye test. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll kind of raise my hand and say I, that never bothered me. I, I think everybody sort of laughs at that, but I, I feel like the way it's shot is obviously. They're doing the best they can with what they've got, right. but the idea that you could see movement in this in some you know movement that doesn't belong in the reflection of someone's eye that you're up close to, I had no problem with that. But yeah, I mean it's it's oddly shot, but but you're trying to convey something, so that eh, never bothered me. Well, I, and it doesn't bother me. I'm just saying to me, it it just kind of it's one example. It's a very well, it's not even the first example. The first example was the the bird on Connor. I was going to say the duck, the duck, the duck <laughs> sets the stage for that. Yeah, but it's. And and then the second would be, uh, you know, he's not really wearing a wetsuit, but you know, the tux underneath that thing he was wearing, and so it's probably like the third thing in the in a in a not that long pre-title sequence that establishes this is a lot different movie than the last Bond movie you saw. Mm. Yeah. Well, we've talked previously about uh, Goldfinger, and you know how many times, how many more times could we actually watch? Goldfinger, and uh, you know, because certainly, I, to a, a large extent, I, I feel like I've overdosed on it. I, I haven't seen it on the big screen, which I, I would like to do. But the the pre-titles, uh, I love. I could right. watch that. I could probably watch that every day for the rest of my life and be happy. <laughs> it's brilliant. And um, you know, the other thing we learned from Goldfinger is that you know, South American countries don't have breakers and fuses because. You, you throw an electric fire in a bath and it'll just keep the juice going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think her, yeah, I think that pre-titles, her in that pre-titles is extremely memorable. And I think it's because that I personally love it when the Bond films do sort of self-contained pre-titles. And Goldfinger was one of those. Me, me too. You know, yeah. Goldfinger had one of those that was like just a mini movie onto itself. So for that moment in time, she's essentially the Bond girl. You know, yeah, that, that's, that's true. Absolutely, yeah, it. yeah. yeah. It, it's a, it's an entire Bond film, yeah. but in in, mm. the, in the space of a few minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Absolutely agree with Maybe you. Maybe when uh, 
Apple buys MGM, that's what we'll get is five minute five minute <laughs> movies for their millennial client base. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, but by judging by that, we wouldn't be complaining, would we? Um, we'd have something um, more often. Um, and and she was in the process of writing her memoirs when she passed away. So I don't know if we're ever going to see those. Um, but that would have been great to get, you know, their stories of early Bond. Um, but yeah, but uh, memory lives on because she did a bunch of interviews. And so we've got, we've got some of that. Another kind of friend of the site and magazine that we interviewed several times and did things with over the years was, um, and not a name that the Bond community is uh, the kind of the um, the casual Bond fan would would know. It was David Picker. Um, he passed away in um, in April. Um, famously, the man that greenlit Bond for the studio and wrote a fantastic. Um, autobiography um shortly before he died um i think 2014 um he did that um but without him as the saying goes um we wouldn't have had the franchise that we celebrate today well and also um not only at the very beginning but then also at the critical early 70s juncture where he insisted Mm. that they bring connery back when broccoli and saltzman were ready to go with john gavin and up actually until had, then, had, gone, had gone with John Gavin and signed yeah, John Gavin. Right. Yeah. Um, and up until then, UA had. <laughs> anytime you're supplying the money, it, it's it's not totally hands off. But they gave Broccoli and Saltzman a lot of flexibility, and so that was an early example of the studio you know, exercising its prerogatives. And, you know, that was the decision to bring him back for diamonds. Um, you know, it ensured that they would have to recast the role pretty quickly again, because there was no way Connor was going to come back for a long-term deal. But in his memoirs, Picker basically said, you know, he really wasn't concerned about long-term prospects. He really thought it was a critical decision and he just did not, he he just did not see any way other than trying to make, uh, they, they, in other words, he felt they really had to make an all out effort to get Connery back just even if it was for just one movie and he, you know, he got his way and Connery got a lot of money. He got a commitment for a movie, The Offense. And uh, while Connery did donate that fee, there were also some other provisions that he would have gotten a ton of overtime if they had gone beyond the shooting schedule. And uh, they made sure that they did not go beyond the shooting schedule. Yeah, I, I, I believe it was the first Bond film to actually uh, be completed on on according to the schedule yeah yeah and and i think that had an impact on the movie in that as written there was this long sequence where uh blofeld did get away mm. from the um oil rig and bond was able to follow him it's the, well, the boats on the lake 
um, sequence, right, in Vegas, in Nevada well, as well. No, I'm, well yeah, but what I'm thinking of was actually in the Mankiewicz first draft where he gets away from the oil rig, and but there was like that weather balloon came some kind of played into it somehow. I don't have it in front of me. And because Blofeld makes some kind of, like bonds up on the balloon and Blofeld says something like Mary Poppins, I presume once, once they got to land. And anyway, in the, in this first draft by Mankiewicz, Blofeld did get killed. He was, it was, there was, there was no, um, is it some kind of rock grinder or something? Yeah. 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 Yeah, And, and, and all this stuff, bloody stuff gets sprayed and yeah. Bonds Which you know something they, they, like, kind of, they kind of use that in License to Kill with Dario later, but right, same kind right. of idea, right? And then Bond says Blofeld was the salt of the earth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but but my point being, they were so determined to keep to the schedule, they didn't really have time to film any kind of ending like that. So it's kind of vague with what the hell happened to Blofeld. You know, when you last see him, he's in that little sub. I think, I think what the hell happened to Blofeld was the, the whole movie, but uh, not, just, not just the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also, but just one thing about those those Picker memoirs. It's very, you know, the Bond chapter is obviously very uh, interesting for any Bond fan. But Picker had a you know pretty fascinating career. He, after he'd been at UA, he was a, a producer for a while. Um, but then he got other studio jobs, and in that uh, in that uh, memoir, he he clearly he was trying to settle some scores. Uh, but right. uh, it was like there was. When one of his studio jobs, there was some movie with Bill Cosby, Leonard Part Six, and you know this is when Bill Cosby is his height of his stardom <laughs> in the eighties, and it just bombed. It just was. Um, and I, I will give Picker credit for one thing: he admits, basically, he, he talks at some length about how making movies is is always going to be a crapshoot, and. Basically, he says, you know, if you took my mistakes and those turned out well and the ones that I write didn't turn out well, they'd be about the same. You know, so it just I mean, he was obviously behind a number of very successful projects. He was involved with projects that weren't very successful at all. But he, he, he was pretty he was very much a colorful character. And that's those memoirs are a pretty good read. He, he was pretty much the guy behind uh Steve Martin for late seventies, early eighties. He did the, the the jerk and the man with two brains. And one of my personal favorites is dead men don't wear plaid. Yes. Where they work in all That's those old movie. movie clips into the story. <laughs> yes. Such a good movie. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I saw that in the theater. It was, it was, uh, yes, it was, it was very entertaining. Yeah. Sadly, I haven't read his uh, autobiography. Uh, I should do. I keep meaning to. Hint, hint to publisher, but <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's pretty good. It's pretty good, and um, he um, he talked very fondly about um, how Barbara Michael kept the series going long after he was his involvement with it. You know, in later years, he was a big fan of Skyfall. I remember we talked to him about that um, twenty thirteen after the year after the film came out. I think so. Yeah, he he stayed a Bond fan, but uh, yeah, I mean, if this if um, the, the the list of people who had as big as an impact on the franchise as the guy who greenlit it for the studio and got Connery back when it was facing certainty. Yeah. I mean, there's not many people that can 
Hard to top that, isn't it? Yeah. Hard to top those lists. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another lesser known name, kind of in the pop culture of um, Office Party Bond, as Mark would say, is, um, and I, I didn't appreciate this at the time, but if you'd have said to me, we're going to bring Bond back after a six year hiatus, reboot it, and by the way, we're going to get the editor of Alien and Blade Runner to do it, I'd be like, holy shit, that's fantastic. It's exactly what they did. I had no appreciation of it at the time. But Terry Rawlings, who, who died in April, was that man. Did seminal work um, on those kind of films, Chariots of Fire as well. Um, was not a Bond fan at all and had to be convinced by director Martin Campbell to come work with him because they'd done a, the, previ- the, the previous project together and Campbell wanted him on Bond, even though he wasn't a Bond fan. And I think a phenomenal job he did in Goldeneye, um, especially... Um, in let's say in more recent films where we've had editors whose back catalogue has not been anywhere close to to what Terry Rawlings had coming into Bond, so I mean he was he was an A list editor that they got on that project, and I I think his contribution has kind of not been as celebrated as maybe it should have been as part of the whole Goldeneye relaunch project. Do you know, I, I I did not know that he'd done Alien and Blade Runner, which yeah. are, are two of yeah. my favorite films. You know, I think one reason that the, you know, for that is because, of course, back when the series began, you had essentially Eon had a de facto in-house editor with, you know, Peter Hunt. Mm-hmm. And, and know, John Glenn after him. Right. So, but then it became... Um, both like the director of photography and the editor kind of became like director choices. Um, mm, that's true. Um, like you mentioned, Terry, Terry Rawlings, you know, came in because of his relationship with Martin Campbell. Um, you know, this, this happens, you know, when you take a look at who edits, which film it's usually they have some relationship to the director and, you know, you had that spell where they had a different director, every movie in the, you know, in the nineties, early two thousands, I guess what I'm trying to say is, so when there, you had that continuity in editing, um, you, you could sort of like fans could get to know them or, you Mm. know, know of them, but you know, now it's like, who's it going to be this movie? Um, you know, just a thought. I, I might be wrong. No, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I think so many things changed on the GoldenEye project in terms of um, the behind-the-scenes crew as well. Um, so many new faces came in, and so many, so many people have been with the franchise a long time kind of shuffled off or were pushed out. Um, or died. Or died. Um, or died during the hiatus. <laughs> um, yeah. I think there was so much um, change on that film that – people like Terry Rawlings, I think kind of got lost in the shuffle in terms of when people look back as to what the, you know, what was part of that successful formula for that film. I think he kind of gets unfairly skipped over um, when people are looking back at that film as being one of the key elements to its success. Correct me if I'm wrong, if there's a whole bunch of like the editing of Golden Eye was the best thing ever posts everywhere, but I haven't seen them. But editing is one of those things that if it's done right, people don't necessarily notice it when it's done badly right. it stands out. So, you know, like slow motion and die another day and stuff. So, yeah. But, um, he didn't do, um, that many 
big films after Goldeneye. Um, his last big credit was um, the 2004 um, screen adaptation of Phantom of the Opera, which was hugely successful. But I mean, what a diverse set of films to, to have worked on in that career from like seminal sci-fi to Bond to musicals, um, historical stuff. Um, I just think um, he's not as celebrated as he should be. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a valid point. Plus also there was so much writing on um, Goldeneye. Um, you know, if that movie had gone badly, well, who knows what would have happened. So I mean, I'm, uh, editor's obviously a key position and there was a lot writing on it. So he was a key member of the team. But as you said, he kind of gets lost in the shuffle. attacking from you know a contributor that's not widely well recognized as bond to one that was um in july david hedison passed away at the age of 92 and up until recently was you know the only returning felix Leiter up until jeffrey wright well and as i think uh i made the comment uh earlier in the year um for for people my age, I mean David Hedison. You know, you grew up with David Hedison. You you saw him on so many different things. He had a he had one. You know, he had a TV series, and then it, when that TV series was done, he was constantly in in uh, guest star on on TV series, usually dramas. But uh, um, but you know, he had a he had, you know, and a lot of different things. I remember there was. <laughs> In the, I want to say the 70s, ABC had this kind of prestige drama from, of all people, Aaron Spelling. It was called Family. And I remember Chrissy McNichol was on it. Anyway, uh, that family had an older daughter, like a, you know, supposed to be a young adult woman. And I remember she had an affair with David Hedison's character and they were supposed to be in love and he was like deeply in love with her but then she ends up having a like a one night stand with somebody else <laughs> like i have to admit i never actually saw the episode but they were like promoting the hell out of this on abc promos i felt like i had seen practically the whole episode but by the time it came on um i remember he he had grown, uh david hedison had grown a beard it was like the first time i ever saw him not clean shaven um and of course, he had a beard, you know, his uh, later years in life. Uh, but yeah, he was in all sorts of things. And he was in this documentary. Um, it's not that well, it's not been that well distributed, but it was a documentary about an actress named Susan Oliver. And Susan Oliver was this uh, incredibly busy actress on a lot of um, TV shows as a guest star. She probably could have been a movie star, but she like broke her Warner Brothers contract and <laughs> Jack Warner got 
even. But anyway, David Hedison was interviewed for that, and he's describing this. It was like the 50s, and you still had these movie magazines that basically trafficked in myth. And he was talking <laughs> about this photo shoot he was doing with Susan Oliver. They were supposed to be like in love, and she's draped on him, and she's you know he's describing how she's playing with my hair and all this stuff. And then as soon as the photo shoot was over, she was like got up and like she was ready to go. And it was he he, he told the story better than I just did. It was it was he, he was a very engaging presence in that documentary and. And um, yeah, I, and he was, of course, uh, active on the convention circuit as well in yes. his later years. Yeah, he he was also in the first version of The Fly. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, back I, when he I, was I, Al Hedison. Oh, was he? <laughs> Remember he? Yeah, he was originally billed as Al Hedison, and then changed it to David Hedison. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I haven't seen him in a huge number of things, but and I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of License to Kill, but like, because I kind of get a bit disconnected from it. But um, I think the beginning with, with him in it works very, very well, and uh, and I think a, a lot of that is due to him. I, I will probably take issue with that, but since we're we're doing our in memoriam and we're being respectful, I won't. <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, I you said earlier that uh, you know up until recently he was the only lighter to actually play the part twice. I, I think uh, the honor he will always hold probably is that he's the only lighter to be played twice, but not consecutively. I have a feeling no one else will ever come in and take that away from him. Cause I, and I always found that to be the funniest, right. just kind of odd, little oddity about the fact that he was cast for yeah. a license or, to or, kill. you know, the only lighter to play opposite two different James Bonds. Maybe they are the yeah, true. I think his chemistry with more because they'd worked together and they knew each other before and after. Um, he was kind of the straight man in, in live and let die. Wasn't he? Um, <laughs> To, to the hijinks that were going on, whether it was more or uh, or um, pepper, um, he he was always on the phone straightening out. <laughs> he was on the he was on the phone to Mister Bleeker of the Flying School, <laughs> yes. which was a pretty funny scene. And he's and he's and he's like keeping his cool. He says, "I know you can't just glue the wings back on, sir." And. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and it was like he was like being comedic in a in a but in a deadpan way it was uh uh and then and and oh and meanwhile here's here's bond you know getting <laughs> with this with a tailor right you know trying on ties and stuff <laughs> now mr bleaker there's no need for name calling yes, yes. <laughs> i'm sure you're a veteran sir yes uh, <laughs> I mean, he did tell us the story. I mean, I think we wrote this in the in the bio we put on the website. That I mean, his casting and license to kill was very fortuitous. I mean, he happened to be in the restaurant at the same time as I think Broccoli was, and the subject came up. And you know, I, I don't think it was one of those Hollywood stories of being in the right place at the right time to be to be thought of and to be seen, and then the question to come up. Um, I, I don't think he. Um, I don't think he. He kind of. Said so, well, obviously they're going to reach back and recast cast lighter with somebody they had before. I think it was more a case of like you know they bumped into each other recently, and then the subject came up, and then it was like, oh, why don't we get David Hedison back again? Um, I'm, I'm not, as you mentioned, Joe. I think maybe a topic for another day, but it was a meat. It was the, obviously the meatiest role for Felix in the franchise, um, and and with a new Bond, 
relatively speaking, oh, they, they, twice they put him up against a relatively new Bond. Both of it was mm. a safe pair of acting hands because he'd been in so many productions and was so safe. Yeah, um, yeah compared. Yeah, my thing with him was always, again, it's certainly never about his performance because, no. I mean, the guy was like, I mean, he's a seasoned pro. Uh, I, I Again, I just felt that the, the casting is is very noticeable. And again, when you when you it was sort of a weird experiment because you sort of went back in Bond history to pluck a former Felix Leiter. Uh, and you put him in this movie with the new James Bond and a whole different tone, et cetera. And if it's going to spark some memory in Bond fans, it's really going to be, uh, you know, about about the history of the franchise, not so much about the actual story here. So, so again, like again, he's perfectly good in it. He's a great actor for sure. Uh, but again, I just just a little little sort of a quirk yeah, in Bond I history. I mean, in in another universe. Uh- License to Kill's got John Terry in his windbreaker getting his getting dumped in, getting dumped <laughs> right. into the, the shark. But um, yeah, so in, in that respect, I, I think we did good. forwarding a bit um to november uh terry o'neill a famous hollywood celebrity royal photographer of the stars uh, passed away um i know the strap line was like he photographed every single james bond but um i've i've yet to find a timothy dalton photo of his um but he was like the go-to celebrity photographer du jour in the 60s and obviously he continued um, and he maintained the copyright to his photos from Bond. So that's why there were those kind of like Terry O'Neill and Bond books that came out. And there was another one planned for 2020. I don't know if it's still going to come out or not since he's passed. But um, yeah, some of the more iconic, the more iconic special shoots were, were his over the years. Um, I was just going to ask, is it fair to say he may have gotten more access on some productions than others? Yes. Because... It seems like the one that he got a ton of access was Diamonds Are Forever, yes. particularly the uh, the L.A. shoot. He was, well, he's, you know, he was the practically the unit photographer on that film. Yeah, for the behind the scenes stuff. I mean, there was so much behind the scenes content from that film that was his. Yeah, because every time I talk about Terry O'Neill photos, it seems like the ones that I remember are, are those Diamonds photos. Yeah, Be- because there was like one of Connery posing at a very shiny table so you have the effect of you know you can see connery's reflection on the table as he's standing there and it's you know it's it's an interesting image um and you know photos of them at the airport you know when they were filming the scene of the casket coming in from uh, the netherlands and you know photos of him and norman burton um things like that yeah, and Live and Let Die was the other big one that he did a lot of work on. And they're the two that strike me, if you would say, 
talk about his work, yeah, the, the diamond shoots and also Live and Let Die. But um, I don't think there's many people in the world that can say they work professionally with like the royal family, James Bond, the Beatles, um, you know, and various other artists, musicians, and actors. I mean, he touched a lot of the pop culture icons over the decades and was married to Faye Dunaway, you know. So uh, he led a pretty glittering life, I think. Yeah. So um, with that, um, the last big one um, to talk about from the, the from the Bond series um, was yesterday, um, Claudine Auger passing away at the age of 78. Um, surprised me, um, wasn't expecting... I was just going to say, apparently she had been ill for some time, so it, it didn't um, mm. it didn't come out of the blue for yeah. for her family, I think. But uh, yeah, it was a bit of a shock to see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, f- there's 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 others in the Bond franchise that we know are you know um, are going through some tough times right now, and we kind of like you know we we expect some bad news one day is going to come eventually. But uh, for us, that was a blind spot. We didn't expect her to go and be the first headline mm. co-star Bond girl mm. to pass out of the franchise. Uh, you, you, well, you know, anecdotally in the past day or so on social media, I've seen a number of Bond fans really take it kind of hard. Yeah. Um, because again, this is like, for uh, there's this one guy I know through Facebook, he's about my age. And, you know, so I think Thunderball was his first Bond movie and, um, that's part of it, but also there's a kind of a mystique about her yes. in that she, from at least for those of us in a, here in, a, in the states, because she wasn't in that many. No, she wasn't English language. She wasn't overexposed in like Hollywood and British productions. It was Thunderball was like it really in terms of um, English language films, right? And and in terms of um, you know she of course was dubbed by Nikki Vanderzil and. Um, so, so for most fans have never even heard her. Bond fans have not even heard her speak in her own voice. The uh, now in 1965 there was that TV special I've mentioned before, The Incredible World of James Bond, and they have the Nassau Casino scene where Bond keeps beating uh, Largo, and in the clip they showed for that TV special both Auger and Adolfo Celli speak in their own voices. Mm. And, you know, this came out, you know, a month before the movie came out. And so that is like one of the few places you can actually hear her speak in her own voice. I mean, she's speaking fine English, but, you know, they still had her dubbed anyway. Uh, and, and Celli as well. Um, well, one curiosity about her name that I, I noticed today, that her family name was spelt um, o g e r, so I can't think why they might have changed that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know at what point she, she changed to the a u g e r, but uh, yeah. And and, she, and also, as far as I know, she never did the convention circuit nope. or anything like that. So, you know, it, it it's like you saw her that one time in that very memorable role, and. Um, you know, because, you know, she's the, you know, when, when we first meet her, she's the mistress of the villain and uh, Bond has to win her over. 
and of course she saves bond's life at the end so you see her that one time and but in terms of english language productions you know it's like hard pressed to see mm-hmm. her ever again mm-hmm. and so th- as a result there's a kind of mystique about her um i think uh i i think that that sort of contributed to some bond fans kind of taking it kind of hard um yes yeah, she didn't that she didn't ha- really age in front of the audience because we haven't seen her in anything else for most people Right, mm. so we have that snapshot of her as always, always as dominant. Nobody else. Yeah. Mm. Well, she, well, she's she's a French actress, yes. I think, mostly, yeah. isn't she? I mean, if you, French if you look at her IMDb, it's mostly Italian. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think there's probably a lot of foreign language movies that, again, would never no. show up on our radar. Right. So, so yeah, she right. She kind of got away from the Bond Bond fans. Yeah, she's her and her character's always been one of my favorites. Um, I, I couldn't tell you why, but just it's, and I think that's, I think that tapped into a little bit of what you said, Bill. I mean, I saw on Facebook too, you know, there's always a lot of reaction when somebody from the bond community, uh, franchise dies. Um, but that was one that, yeah, a lot of people were taken aback by, um, not because it was a surprise because, you know, she was 78, but, um, just almost like they'd lost something from their youth or something like something had been taken away from them. It's the strangest kind of reaction a lot of people had, but, um, but in a good way, you know, like a yeah. lot of people really loved her performance in that film. She was always smiling and happy. If you see any of the behind the scenes stuff, always having fun. Um, we never had the pleasure of talking to her, interviewing her. She was one of the ones that we never got, you know, to speak to. Um, so that, that mystique continues. And, and and also she was very young uh, during the production. I mean, she only turned twenty four in in the middle of production of Thunderball. I think she, her birthday was uh, April of forty one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, she would have you know celebrated her twenty fourth birthday during the production of the film. Um, you know, and again, what you said earlier about you know that snapshot in your mind, you you know you remember a twenty four year old, right? Um, in a lot of bikini and wetsuit shots and evening gowns and and that sort of thing yeah so how do we think about um and, and domino as i think in terms of the fan community i think it's always she's up there in as one of the favorites but if you look at like lists you know that often go around in newspapers magazines and stuff of top bond girls is she's not usually up in the top ranks um, in the wider audience. And I never really understood what that distinction is. It's like, why do Bond fans rate her higher and kind of have this kind of attachment to her, whereas the wider audience was maybe not yeah. so much. No, I, I don't know. I, I, it's funny because earlier this afternoon when I was thinking about this podcast and I, I, I was thinking about uh, my, my favorite Bond girls and, and she, she definitely is one of them. Uh, but uh, I, I, I've, I've no idea really why. Well, well, you know what? Well, for one thing, her character is not over the top. Um, for example, uh, Luciana Paluzzi, of course, in that same film, is the femme fatale. Yes. And she is much more over the top. Plus, she was in a ton of English language productions. You know, she was on... Uh, American television quite a bit uh, up until shortly before she got married. Um, so, and, and she often played, you know, very flamboyant 
character. So it could be that um, in terms of both Bond and the general public, you know, she made just made more of an impression because she often played more flamboyant characters. I don't know. Mm. I, th- I think if you look at her, her role in the film, the, the actual character, she, I think she's one of the few that don't really, well, you know, I might shoot myself in the foot by saying this, but she, she doesn't seem to have a, a very active role in what happens to her. Uh, despite the finale, I mean, she does sort of come into her own at the last minute and that is certainly a great character arc for her. But for the most part, I feel like the movie yeah, happens pushes to her, her around. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. and and she's been manipulated by Largo. And Bond. Largo has <laughs> Largo has arranged for her brother to be killed. Um, and then Bond manipulates her. Right. You know. Right. And and also it it was gently implied that um, Largo and Domino maybe had a little over the top sex life because remember the bedroom mm-hmm. with the mirror on the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> the camera just lingers <laughs> on for just a second. You don't, you know, they don't. Yeah. I mean, nothing is stated or anything like that. Do you know what? I've, I've never, I've never <laughs> noticed that. <laughs> it's in the scene where you know she's tied up on the bed, and he's got the, you know, he's got the ice sure. cubes in the. Uh, c- c- it's not a cigar, but yeah. whatever. You know, these, you know, he's he's yeah. getting ready to torture her, and so there's this shot, and the camera's looking up. So it's like you're looking up at Largo, and you know the mirrored ceilings behind you know up on the you, know, you you can see it so that 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 kind of implies that okay. know, they, may, they may have had a rather active sex life uh yeah you know david I mean, don't I, I, don't feel bad i didn't notice it either and it wasn't until scott and i were reviewing it that he was talking about it and he, uh-huh. he was, it was in terms of the camera work and he was talking about that angle with the, the mirrored ceiling and i went Really? And it wasn't until I was editing it that I was like, oh, yeah, there it is. So I, I, I never hey. caught it myself. <laughs> but it, this is my favorite Bond film. I don't know how many times I've seen it, and I've never noticed that. <laughs> well, what a great bit of production design that told a little bit of backstory, and you didn't – Yeah. it wasn't like yeah, smacking yeah. you in the face, uh, obvious, you know? So very subtle. So how do you feel, Joe, in, in terms of your – Bond girl rankings is 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 my hypothesis that she ranks higher with hardcore fans than she does the general public. True for you too, or have you got different opinion? Uh probably. I, you know, again, I, I, it's Thunderbolt has always been one of my favorites as well. Uh, so, and I like the romance that they have, and I think she's great. She's beautiful. Uh, but yeah, I kind of feel like it, at the end of the day, she, she is just sort of pushed around in the story. And I think with that in mind, it's it's hard to really get very excited while watching her. I mean, essentially, seriously, she's she's a kept woman and Bond is I almost feel like if um, if the feminists want to complain about anyone, I think she might take first prize, really, because I mean, she's she, she's all she's really doing is being kept by Largo. And then Bond comes in and he says, well, I'm more charming than him, so I'm going to manipulate you better <laughs> and uh, get information from you and get you to do stuff for me. And essentially, that's exactly what happens. Uh, I, but again, I, 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 she has a great moment at the end, which I think kind of vindicates her character a little bit. But um, yeah, so yeah, I, I, she's not really going to skyrocket to the top of any list, I think. Yeah, I think the, 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 the vindication a character gets and the redemption arc at the end is without that, yeah. you're, I think you're absolutely right. Without that, it would be... 
her character would be up there in the um, in the ones to go after. You know, if you were. To- Yes, and you could you could actually argue well without her being pushed around throughout the whole film, it doesn't really give that right. moment a lot of punch. If if she was always kind of taking matters into her own hands, then it wouldn't be so you know such a great moment. But the fact that she has been pushed around so long, that's why that has so mm. much punch. Well, and when it was remade as Never Say Never Again, uh, they tried to make Domino a bit more of an active character. You know, her taking the dancing lessons. Of course, even then, Largo is eavesdropping in on her through the mm. one-way mirror or whatever. But, um, uh, but they, you know, they were they were trying to make her a little more independent. You know, when you know when played by Kim Basinger. But uh, I don't know how mm. well they succeeded. But there was there was the attempt. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out on a limb here, Bill, and say they didn't succeed. Okay. <laughs> that's fine when, when kim basinger harpoons largo at the end it's 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 oddly right. ineffective there yeah yeah well, i didn't say it worked i'm just saying they tried <laughs> yeah. yeah wanted to end on this that sadly you know due to this the age of the franchise that we're at um you know oh this is going to happen this this we're gonna have we're gonna lose more big names uh people who have had you know an emotional impact on fans over the years um it's only going to get harder um over the next few years mm. Well, I'll, I'll I'll go on. A, this is not much of a limb to go on. It's like when Ursula Andress passes away, whenever that is, uh, you, boy, that that will be that'll that'll be people will really take it hard then, and understandably so. You're absolutely right, though. This is this is uh, going to it's going to start. You know, I, I've been feeling recently that very feeling, like you know the the uh, you know Honor Blackman, Ursula Andress, but at some point we're going to lose Connery. And I kind of feel like that's really going to be. Yeah. Right. I I, I was thinking about this earlier and that that is going to be absolutely devastating. Uh, I'm I'm, going to feel that. Well, I had a first big taste of it, of course, when Roger Moore died a couple of years ago. And And I'd uh, say this, Bill, I think when, yeah, because Roger was so active as kind of like uncle bond and as the spokesperson for the franchise in these later years, um, and so many people that had been working tangentially with the franchise for decades knew him and met him and done several events with him. I think that loss was profoundly felt by those who had met him. Whereas I think because Connery has kept his distance, um, it's more of the idea of him and the image of him that I think that will be felt rather than the person. Um, so I think it's going to be different. And the media, mm-hmm. I think the media is going to go all out on on some of yeah. the passing but i think in the in terms of the people that have been around the series for a long time um roger was loved by so many people that i think that's let's not underestimate how bad that was when he passed for for many people well i 
I just know in my in my own case, I was in a meeting at work and um, I had the phone, and it was part of the meeting I didn't have to deal with, and I saw that he you know he had died, and you know the announcement had just come out. I mean, probably been out less than an hour because the the family had made the announcement on social media, and. Yeah, what I saw was like the first, you know, real sketchy Mm -hmm. story that could get kicked out (laughs) based on that, based on those social media posts. And I just know in my own case, um, my thumbs were trembling, (laughs) you know, trying to manipulate the phone. Uh, And I, I got, you know, I mean, I knew his age. I knew he was, you know, almost 90. And so you can't say it's like, a sudden surprise, but you know, but at the same time, there had been, you know, they had kept his medical condition. Uh, I guess it, he had taken a turn for the worse yes. relatively recently, yes. but you know, that had been kept yes. pretty much under wraps as far as I know. And uh, yeah, that was definitely a shock. And uh, yeah, I mean, as an example of Roger Moore, just real quick so in 87, there was this TV special, you know, for the 25th anniversary of of the Bond franchise and Roger Moore hosted it. And it really was kind of like him passing the baton. Mm -hmm. I mean, you you obviously couldn't imagine Connery doing anything like this. Um, Mm -hmm. And they had this one really slick scene. It was like Roger Moore in, uh, in his ski clothing. And he was wearing the Bogner jacket with the little B on the zipper. And he's like talking to the camera, doing his narration. And then he pushes off and starts skiing. And then they, slip it into a, a scene out of four your eyes only where he's wearing the same right same outfit and you know it was all sorts of stuff like that a lot of nice touches then finally like the last 10 minutes or so then you finally see you know timothy dalton and scenes from the upcoming movie and uh, and like i say it was very much you know roger moore uh you know it had the effect of Roger Moore passing the baton to Timothy Dalton. And, uh, and then of course he did other things yeah. for the franchise in later years, but, uh, yeah, no, it was, and the, I, think I agree with you. That's a good point, Bill. The only time I think that's ever, that was ever done. Yeah. Yeah. Where there was that seam, that try that attempt at a seamless transition. Um, but it does raise the question. We've talked about it before. I think, uh, in passing that, Roger passed away two years ago. Is it too long to do the dedicated to in no time to die in the end credits? And if so, does that then set a precedent that, you know, if somebody passes them, because I mean, they've done it before. So I don't know whether, whether they would do an in memoriam with in remembrance of Roger or in the memory of Roger credit on no time to die in April. When when Goldeneye came out, I wondered if they might have some kind of noting of the passing of Richard Maybaum and Maurice Binder. Now they had died a few years you now before Goldeneye came out, and they didn't. Um, you had um, Derek Meddings, but he had worked on the film, mm-hmm. and you know his death was much more recent than there so you, you so you you know had meddings and of course you had albert R. broccoli's passing noted at the uh, end titles of tomorrow never dies but that had been a year yeah. i mean you know not been, you know and you know it's his company making the movie so uh told different set of rules so 
and you know, and I'm not complaining. Don't get me wrong. His passing definitely should have been noted in Tomorrow Never Dies, but uh, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to have a in memoriam for Roger Moore. I just don't know. I'd be surprised if they do, only because I feel like at this, like you said, it's so long ago. I feel like for them to do it now would really shine a spotlight right. on how long it's mm. taken to make this movie. Because I think people in the audience, I mean, will remember, remember it. But your average moviegoer is going to be like, wait, wait, didn't he die like right. years ago? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, I don't think it's going to happen either. Same for the same reasons. Yeah, maybe it would. Maybe it would be. Um, uh, I guess maybe more affectionate to put some kind of Easter egg in the film. No, that, that's know. exactly what what I was thinking. Yeah, I I, I think that's the way to go. So we just need to look out for it. Yeah, something that the general cinema, the general audience is mm. going to not notice, but fans will be like, that's a respectful nod kind of thing. I, I could see them putting something in the end credits, like at the end of the film, but yeah, but then again, I th- I, it'd probably just sort of be uh, too little, too late, so they might not even bother. Yeah. Well, maybe it's when Bond goes to pick up his Aston Martin in that lock-up garage. He he opens the wrong one first of all, and there's Wet Nelly in there. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> a, lo- a Lotus up on blocks with the engine being uh, winched up, like, like most Lotuses. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Well, what I hope if what I hope they don't do is have a bust of a. You know, Roger Moore somewhere, something like that, right. that, that takes you out of the film. Yeah. Um, the, you know, I guess 2016 now, there was that Ghostbusters movie with the, the women Ghostbusters, and they made a point of getting a cameo for everybody who would make, who was willing to do one. And, of course, one of them had died, and so there was like his bust, bust of his head, somewhere at this university and it's just like and the camera lingers on it's like we you know it's it's i I know you want to be respectful but all you're doing is just kind of you're distracting from Mm -hmm. the story you're trying to tell and the most respectful thing to do would to be have made a better movie yeah they they did something similar in uh, indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull they had a didn't they have a big giant statue of marcus brody which ultimately gets crashed into and his head flies off. So, so much for the respectful uh, tribute. It's what he would have wanted. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen, for this recapping um, those we lost in 2019. A bit of a somber episode, but I think it's important to look back at everybody who's contributed and is no longer with us as we enter the new year. And um, as I said, you know, I think, you know, um, batten down the hatches because I think we're, we're going to be in for a period where we start losing some big names as as time creeps on inevitably um, but fingers crossed we don't and mm. everybody you know lives long and healthy lives but um, with that in mind we will enter the new year with a little bit of cheer hopefully and uh, no more bad news you're here very good alright thanks guys and we will catch you all in the new year <laughs>